Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions, world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. The time has come to talk about creepy doll movies. They have a long and storied history, probably dating back to 1929, when Eric von Stroheim starred as the great Gabo in the early talkie of the same name. It established the ventriloquist with a dummy that may have a mind of its own, or is it really an expression of madness from the ventriloquist? Many of these frightening tales of scary dolls and dummies had a high pedigree anchored by major stars. In 1945, the British horror anthology Dead of Night also dealt with a Sir Michael Redgrave as a ventriloquist and his crazy-making doll. Telly Savalas went up against Talking Tina in a famous Twilight Zone episode in the early 60s. Anthony Hopkins, yes, Hannibal Lecter himself, starred opposite his wooden buddy Fats in Magic in 1978. But soon the movies veered away from ventriloquists and into consumer brand dolls you could find in your very own home. Bird Eye Gordon's Attack of the Puppet People in 1958 kicked it off, but Charles Band amped things up a bit with his puppet master movies as well as Stuart Gordon's dolls. But creepy dolls found their purchase most successfully with Tom Holland's Child's Play and the Chucky sequels and TV series so beautifully guided by Don Mancini. You would think that the concept had been worn out by now, but it hasn't. The most successful creepy doll movie of all time, at least in terms of box office, is Megan, which as of this moment has grossed over $100 million. The movie is a blast, and we're going to talk with screenwriter Akela Cooper about reinventing the creepy doll movie after this. A group of friends on a weekend cabin trip begin to suspect something supernatural is at play when the kids behave strangely and disappearing into the woods overnight. There's Something Wrong with the Children is the latest horror film from Blumhouse Productions, available to buy or rent on digital now. This film is not rated. This episode is sponsored by Gravitas Ventures' new horror film, Bermuda Island. A group of passengers who crash at sea end up on a deserted island. In the daytime, it seems like paradise. At night, deadly creatures emerge to attack. Can they overcome the odds and survive? Watch Bermuda Island now on digital. Kayla, it's so good to have you here. Welcome. Hello. It's so good to be here. Thank you for having me. It's great. I, you know, I I love to start finding out how things began for people who were obviously genre fans to get such an understanding of it. So you are from Haiti, Missouri. Is that right? <laughs> hey, Thai. Hey, Thai, Missouri. I should have known yes. the spelling would mean it was pronounced differently. Yeah, we have no idea where the name actually came from. There are like many, many different local legends. But yes, it looks like Haiti. It is pronounced Haiti. And it's a small, small town of less than 3,000 people. 
Wow. So you took creating our uh, creative writing courses at Truman University. Um, I started writing short stories when I was 12 years old. What was it for you? Uh, it was short stories as well. Uh, probably around like the third grade, uh, my English teacher, Mrs. Palmer, shout out to Mrs. Palmer, uh, would give writing assignments. Uh, usually it's like busy work, but sometimes it's like, you know, necessary for the course, uh, whatever she was teaching at that time. And I loved, I loved the writing assignments. Like I was really, really good at them. Um, and so at some point I just like took the initiative and started like writing little like three page, you know, four page short stories for myself. And my mom would read them and she would think they were cute. And so that's <laughs> when I was like, well, if my mom likes it, then that must mean I have talent. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Your mother would not be supportive if you didn't have talent. No, no, not So, <laughs> uh, but it was actually it's like as I got older, my third grade teacher became my fourth grade teacher. Uh, oh. She, Mrs. Palmer, like moved up. And then I think maybe like sixth grade as well. Uh, and <laughs> she would give like more, it's small town, my friend, uh, yeah. more, more writing assignments. And eventually she started keeping my work to use as examples for future classes. And then I was like, okay, so I know my mom thinks I've got talent, but now my teacher thinks I'm talented too. Now so Mrs. Like, Palmer does too. So then yes. that's validation. Oh, very much so. It's like, okay, there's there's something here. Uh, and I also, it's like my parents were like avid readers. So I really enjoyed like reading books, uh, whatever I could get my hands on. Like I started reading Stephen King at a very, very young age. Um, and he's one of the favorites. And like eventually I discovered Bentley Little as well. Okay. Uh, it's it's really surprising to me that no one has adapted anything from Bentley Little. <laughs> it is um, surprising. He And he's written so many books. Exactly. Yes. It's like as prolific as he is, it's like surely someone would have done something by now. Um, but then, you know, I also got into like Nancy A. Collins in the 90s. Uh, yeah. And just, yeah, you know, like the classics and all that stuff. And so I was like, all right, these are the, the writers that I want to emulate. And initially I thought I was going to be a novelist. Like that was... The career path I thought I was going to take it was be like I wanted to do movies as a young as a youngling um but I thought I was going to take uh the Michael Crichton route where like uh -huh. I would write the novel and then Hollywood would come knocking and then I'd be like okay you can have the rights but I'm gonna I'm gonna write the screenplay like that's how <laughs> I thought I was gonna break in uh so yes I went to Truman State University and I did my undergrad where I majored in creative writing and from there, I had really great professors who were like, you like writing. Why don't you try grad school? And mind you, this was to goose the school's, you know, like stats numbers of like students who would go on to get master's and PhDs. So I didn't take it all that seriously. And I only applied to like four grad programs, uh, two screenwriting and two creative writing. Uh, and it just so happened that like didn't get into two, one of which was like just like a disaster that like but you got the most important one yes like i got into usc and so yeah, you you what, struck you got the gold ticket pretty much i was i remember when i got like my acceptance letter too it was like such an amazing day uh i my mom is a school teacher and i remember like driving to her school like like i was home with my dad and we celebrated and then i like drove to my mom's school and just completely disrupted her day uh it's like i got in um, so yeah, I got into USC. And well, let's back up just a little bit. Was it always scary stories that appealed to you? Yes. Yes, it was. It was always like scary stories or science fiction. 
Um, yeah. But usually scary stories, except for the, the stuff that I wrote is like third grade was comedy, kind of like silly little slice of life stuff. Yeah. But like by junior high, high school, I was I was writing the scary stuff. Like at one point I, you know, practicing screenwriting, I wrote a sequel to John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, oh, that's on a awesome. typewriter uh, and I think my mom still might have that somewhere at home um but yeah it was always like all of my short stories were were scary uh and that's what I always wanted to do like that's what I loved to do and when I got out uh to USC like I was encouraged to like try different genres uh and I did like I wrote like a, a feature-length drama but like once I got that out of the way, I was like, okay, I'm going to write horror now. And everyone <laughs> like early on in my career was like, you know, you're going to get pigeonholed. You're going to get pigeonholed. And I'm like, and? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I'm here to tell you, you do get pigeonholed and it's a great hole to be pigeoned. I'm like, if this is what I want to do, why would I not want to be working? Yeah. And, and But every, even because I, I, I moved over to TV early on. And I wanted to do things like, you know, I wanted to work for like Battlestar Galactica and like science fiction was like really, you know, popping in the early to mid aughts. And I had like mentors who were like, but you you know, you need to like write uh, procedural specs and like the CBS and the NBC stuff. And I'm like, I appreciate those shows, but I don't want to write those shows. I want to write stuff like Battlestar Galactica. And they're like, you're going to get pigeonholed. And I'm like, I'm fine with that. Um, <laughs> Good for you. Google gobble one of us is what we like to say. <laughs> uh, and that's just, that's what I've been doing, like pretty much throughout my career. It's been all genre stuff. Well, tell me about film school, the transition from a standard creative writing program at uh, Truman State, and then going to the king of film schools, USC. Tell me about that, that metamorphosis in what was taught, how it was taught, and what the experience fed you as a budding young screenwriter? What I appreciated about the transition from Truman to USC is that like USC, like your master's degree is like a concentrated thing. Like when you're doing your undergrad, especially like at, at Truman, which was, you know, it touted itself as like this liberal arts school where you had to learn everything. You had to have like this well-rounded education. So I had to take calculus and I'm like, <laughs> I don't know why I'm taking calculus. I don't need it. I will never need it. And uh, you're like, I think I'm like the tail end of that generation where our teachers are like, someday you're going to need to know all this math because you're not going to be able to have a calculator in your pocket. It's like, we have computers in our pockets now. Yeah. <laughs> we have full on computers in our pockets. Basic math, sure. I did not, I didn't need geometry. I didn't need calculus. I didn't need trig. Like, and now I'm just like going into a rant <laughs> for my <laughs> high school self. It's like taking all those classes that are like, they're pointless. So yeah. I appreciated like the foundation that Truman gave me for like, you know, studying and doing research and being able to, you know, uh, go in those directions. But like USC was here is the field that you want to work in and we're going to help you, you know, kind of grasp. I wouldn't even say master, even though I got a master's degree. It's like we're going to help you grasp the concept of like how scripts and how filmmaking works. Um and give you the foundation that you can go forward with that. And, and I had some really good professors and it was a really good education. It's like, even though I had been practicing writing scripts in high school, I didn't really know like structure and character work and all of that stuff. So USC gave me that foundation uh, to go with. And at the time they had a nascent television program. It's way bigger now. 
Uh, but I had no idea how TV worked at all. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't pay attention to the credits, unfortunately. So I would, I would miss is like written by such and such writer and, and blah, blah, blah. So, so USC exposing me to the television field was uh, incredibly beneficial to me, especially now. Um, it gave me my, my start uh, and, and the foundation of working in television is collaboration, um, which a lot of times is like when you're working in features, you're working by yourself and then you hand off your script to a director who's going to do their pass or they're going to bring in other writers behind you to do their pass. And that can be kind of daunting for someone. But like with television, that's what you do the entire time. It's like you're writing and then you pass it off to your showrunner. And the showrunner does a pass and you've got notes and like studio. Well, there's a writer's people. room in television, which yes. is a totally different world that I wanted to get into as well. Because when you made that transition from TV to features, the process is so completely different in that regard. But before we leave USC, what were some of the precepts that you came away with that you otherwise might not have as far as the process of screenwriting? You don't want to make it too formulaic, but like learning the three X structure really did help. Uh, it's especially if it's just like, you know, as, as college students who are like, oh, I'm going to like be, a, you know, I want to make the cinema. I want to make the art. It's like you can you can find yourself up your own ass a lot of times when you're writing these scripts. And it's like, yeah, no, it's a lot of this is unnecessary and it's not interesting. And you haven't hooked the reader like you've got to hook the reader by page 10. Otherwise, you know, whatever poor assistant has been assigned your script that weekend, it's probably going to stop reading. Like you got to get to the point. You've got to get to the plot. You've got to like make your characters interesting. Another thing that really helped at USC was um, I can't remember uh, which professor gave me this advice, but it's like, you know, swap character names and see if that makes a difference in the dialogue. Like Excellent. if it like if it doesn't, if everyone sounds it's like if you can swap characters and it's fine then i think it's like you, all of your characters sound the same like you have to swap the characters and know in your own mind and in like your own body that like that character would not say that in that way like i have to change it if i want that character to say this yeah because so, you are all the characters you write and they yes. all have to be different they can be different facets of who you are and in a way they have to be because it's coming out of your head. Yes. But the point is the creation of characters who live and breathe on their own and interact with a world in different ways. They come from different places. Yes. So yeah, if you swap two characters and then you're staring at the dialogue and you're like, no, he wouldn't say it like that. Then you're on the right path. It's like, yes, your characters have personalities. They have different ways of speaking. Um, and so that was like a huge, huge bit of um, advice that I still use to this day. Um, and so it was it was just like a really good foundation in just like building story within scripts and within this world. And, and, and it was helpful. Um, I'm trying to think of anything else like on the feature end. Um, but yeah, it was mostly like, you know, and, and make obviously make sure the characters are, themselves are interesting because no matter what you're writing, if your audience doesn't care about what's happening to your characters, they're not going to be engaged or invested in the movie. And like, that's across all genres. Um, and so I think that really goes for horror because like you want to root for your characters. You want them to survive. And if you're cheering for them to survive and they don't, you want the audience to have an emotional reaction to that. And so, yeah, it was it was a good lesson in, in world building and in character building. Well, you were also the first recipient of the NAACP CBS Writers Fellowship. Yes. So tell me about that and, and how that affected what was to follow. 
I was a guinea pig. So the NAACP, uh, they did partner with CBS and USC was the first school. I believe they've also partnered with UCLA now and maybe some other schools uh, just to sponsor what we call a diverse student, i.e. a non-white guy. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, you know, at the time, it's like there weren't that many of us working uh, in television or in features, really. And so it's like we need to help them in some way, though this was mostly for television. And, you know, my professors got together and they're like, who's going to be the recipient of this? And they decided it was going to be me, um, which was nice. I also got like a, a nice little scholarship that helped me pay off <laughs> some of the loans and some of the bills. Uh, and that got me grandfathered into the CBS Writers Program where I met uh, Carol Kirshner, who is a dear friend and a mentor to me to this day. Uh, and that got me my first foot in the door in television, where my mentor in that program, Lee Redman, was developing a sci-fi show at the time called Jericho. Uh, and the great thing about the CBS program was that like, it actually did train you on how to be a staff writer in the room because uh, a lot of people have no idea what the expectations are of that and they don't know how to act or how to you know like interact with people and it can cause issues and at the time I think like a lot of shows weren't really hiring staff writers just to like kind of avoid that headache so you have the CBS program and RIP but the Warner Brothers Writers Workshop as well uh, and NBC's Writers on the Verge like those programs to kind of like help young writers like know how to navigate the, their first time in a writer's room and so what a great transition to come out of film school and have this fellowship that encourages you to be a part of the room, see what the room works like, yes. what the what the steps are, because it is such a very specific role writing for television as opposed to all other kinds of screenwriting or fiction writing. Yes. And it was like we did mock writers rooms where like we had like a professional TV writer come in and like we broke an episode, I think it was like Grey's Anatomy, just to show us what that process is is like and it's like oh this is fun and i enjoy this um and then we also got help writing specs uh, at the time you know writing pretend episodes or speculative episodes of shows that were already in television was necessary i still think it's necessary today um though i know a lot of people are now working on pilots and stuff like that uh, but it does help um when you have to like mimic someone else's voice and i will say that practice uh as someone who like i do rewrite work on the feature side. And so a lot of times it's like, okay, I can match the voice that's already there that the studio likes uh, and keep that consistent as much as possible. So yeah, television has helped greatly uh, in my career on the feature side, but I, I got my first uh, assistant job on Jericho, which was on CBS. I was the research assistant. And that's where my time at Truman State came in handy because uh, I knew how to do like proper research, uh, even though I didn't need to like citations or anything like that. I just <laughs> needed to present answers quickly to the writers. Uh, and that was a wonderful experience because that was it was a rare case of the show filmed in Los Angeles and we were right. in Van Nuys. And so our writer's room was there, our sets were there, like our standing sets and post was there as well. So when I wasn't needed in the writer's room, I could go hang out on set and I would like hang out with the different departments and like learn what they did. Uh, and then when we weren't filming and I wasn't in, needed in the writer's room, I would go hang out with the editors and post. And, when and that wasn't, 
But, you know, the norm, that was the norm for years and years. Yes. And then along came Canada and along came Georgia and along yeah. came, uh, you know, uh, everywhere else but uh, Los Angeles. And the fact is so many of the productions we see now are written in L.A. They're shot in Vancouver. They're edited in Los Angeles. Uh, it's just a a very weird kind of international world of production now. Yes. But I was lucky because like I got a 360 degree view of how television worked and I got like a hands-on education. Like I, I could ask the people directly. It's like what I would hang out in the digital imaging technician tent uh, with the, yeah. the DP and be like, why are you, you know, why are you changing those buttons all the time? Like what's going on? <laughs> He's like, you know, it's like trying to find like the right color and blah, blah, blah. But it was wonderful. Like it was, it was a really good experience. And from there, just kept working my way up the assistant ladder. And then I got into the Warner Brothers Writers Workshop. And that's what got me my first staff writing job on- Is that on Tron? No, Tron Legacy was uh, a friend got me, like a friend knew the showrunners on Tron Legacy and he knew they were going to do freelance work. So he put me up for that. And so I got a freelance episode of Tron Legacy. Was that your first produce teleplay? animation i think so yeah 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 um and that was fun like that was you know it was freelance so i would go in like i think a couple times a week for like two weeks and break the episode and then i turned it over and then it was like two years later i think it was animated um and that was really really fun and i wonder so, brothers that did that lead to grim which was was that your first live action production no, my first live action from the Warner Brothers program was the remake or reboot, whatever you want to call it, of V on ABC. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. That lasted for two seasons. Uh, I was on the first season of that. Uh, and that was that was an incredibly tough experience. I'm not going to lie. It was it was very difficult because like in so what way? You know, ABC had their idea of what they wanted the show to be, and Warner Brothers had their idea of what they wanted the show to be, and rarely did those two sides ever meet. So we were constantly throwing out scripts and starting over from scratch, like mm -hmm. constantly. Like it was it was a lot of late nights and like working on the weekends for months on end. But as a staff writer, it was, I got thrown into the deep end of the pool and I had to learn like how to keep up with everyone else and like pull my weight very, very quickly. Cause like when you have like a episode thrown out at 3 PM and you shoot scenes that Monday, like you got to do turnaround. And so we're all, you know, Frankensteining the script. Like you take act one, you take act two and you got to You got to get it done. And so like, I didn't, I didn't really have time for like the traditional like staff writer learning curves. It was like, just do it. Um, so yeah, like it was, it was very, very tough. Uh, but I made it through that, uh, and I was better for it on the other end of that. And then I think I didn't work for like a year after that. And so I had a friend who worked in reality TV and she threw me some work so that I could pay the bills. Um, but then I got a new agent, uh, uh, at the, the agency I was at, and he was like, a fan of my work and he was eager to prove himself as an agent like he was like at the yeah. time colloquialism was like baby writer baby agent we've moved <laughs> away from that well tell but me it, how important an agent is to to a writer's career for me it was very important because i i realized that like 
my first agent wasn't necessarily taking me that seriously as a client. And so wasn't putting me up for as many shows and getting me like in the room to meet with showrunners, which is where you like, you know, present yourself as a potential hiring possibility and, you know, hopefully get hired. And so it wasn't until I got my second agent who was also young and eager to prove himself. Like he got me a bunch of meetings and he got me in the room and he got me in the room with the showrunners at Grimm and early on, like they liked me, but I was not their first choice. They wanted to go with another writer and my agent just kept hounding them like he was the squeaky wheel. And so when their first choice went to another show and she passed, uh, they came back to me because my agent had kept up with it. Uh, and so, yeah, it's like having an agent who is dogged about getting you work is is very important. And if not an agent, then a manager, because um, I also have uh, a manager. And so, yeah, it was it was he and his, you know, pursuit <laughs> of Grimm is what helped me get my foot in the door there. And I did two seasons on Grimm. Uh, and from there, like that helped. Like once I had two seasons of a show under my belt, I went from Grimm to the hundred um, and right. did two seasons of the hundred and in between seasons one and two of the hundred, I had a friend who I met on Grimm. And this is where like not being an asshole and networking on the shows you are on becomes important because those people will go on to do other jobs uh, and become the recommendations that you need. And in this case, it was Richard Haddam and he ended up becoming co-showrunner on Witches of East End season two. And Which he I directed me. an episode of in season one. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Small um, Yes, it is. Uh, and so, yeah, Richard remembered me from Grimm and he suggested me to the other showrunner and she met me and she liked me and she liked my writing. And so I did uh, season two of Witches of East End and then went back to the hundred season two. And after that, um, it turns out, and again, a lesson in not being an asshole, uh, one of the executives on Jericho who worked for John Turtletop's company at ABC, Disney, left and became an executive for Marvel Television or for the Netflix side. And he knew me from Jericho, like we did uh, the Christmas gift exchange. <laughs> like, so I got him a Christmas gift. Uh, but again, it's like I hadn't, you know, thought anything of it, but he remembered me from Jericho and had been following my trajectory and he was like we're doing this Marvel show which at the time they were like we can't tell you what it is because Marvel is so damn secretive uh but it was Luke Cage uh and he put me up for Luke Cage and I met with the showrunner who I kind of knew through other friends um mutually but like we hit it off and he brought me on to Luke Cage and I did two seasons of Luke Cage and so like two of those jobs came from previous connections um and particularly writers become producers in television. Yes. And that happened with you with Witches of East End and with Luke Cage. <clears throat> Tell me the increased amount of responsibility or is it just earning an extra credit? It's, there is increased amount of responsibility, but it really depends on what your showrunner is going to give you. Though a lot of times when, it, you know, even if you're a staff writer, usually you'll be allowed to go to set and cover your episode uh but that does become a responsibility once you hit story editor and then co-producer like you're going to set and a lot of times uh you're running the room like if the showrunner can't 
run the room, uh, then usually it's like, you know, the person next in the hierarchy is responsible. And if they can't do it, then it falls to whomever. Uh, but like you're, you're going to set, you're running the room. You might end up sitting in on post, especially if it's your episode. Uh, if the showrunner can't be there, uh, you need to fill in, um, you might end up doing casting. Like I've sat in on casting sessions um, a couple times and you're, you know, uh, mentoring the younger writers. Like if the showrunner can't do it, then it's up to you to, you know, read the staff writers work and give them notes and make sure the script is where it needs to be before it gets to the showrunner so they can do their pass. So really it's like, it's whatever responsibilities the showrunner wants to delegate, uh, to you. But yeah, once, once you hear producer, like you're doing, you're doing more than just being in the room. Yeah, I, I got my start. My first job was as story editor on Amazing Stories, the original wow. 1980s version. And so it was my responsibility to do all the rewriting after the other writers had written their draft and their set of revisions because they didn't want to pay more for any more rewriting. It was my job to do any further writing after that. Yeah. Then on another Amblin show uh, that didn't last very long for NBC called The Others, I was supervising producer. And it was interesting because though I wrote for the show, my primary job was hiring directors. Mm -hmm. So in the world of series television, writer producers are much more important to what happens with the show than the directors in a lot of ways. So tell me about from your end, I came from the directing as well as the writing end. You're coming from the writing end, dealing with directors who are kind of like guest stars in series television. They come in for an episode. Yeah, I've I've been very lucky to like mostly have like cool directors. Um, but yeah, at some point it's like when you're on a show and even if you're not the showrunner, you still like whether you're hiring directors or covering set for your episode, you are responsible for, you know, making sure the tone of the show and the intention of the episode and the scenes like are intact and are what the showrunner wants. Uh, and so hopefully you come to a consensus when you're doing pre-production, like pre-production is, is very, very necessary in television so that everyone is on the same page with <laughs> what you're doing for the episode. But sometimes, yeah. And, and I've had to like talk to directors and pull them aside and go, it's like, Hey, uh, we can't do this, uh, because it's not in line with what the showrunner will want for this episode and for the show. And those are, you know, especially like early on, like those are scary discussions to have, but that is part of your job is making sure the show remains consistent to the showrunner's voice. Uh, and so those are just the things that hopefully you have a good showrunner who has, you know, taught everyone what they need to be doing, uh, especially because it makes the showrunner's job easier. if They don't constantly have to micromanage everything uh but yeah by the, hopefully by the time you're dealing with directors you know what to look out for and you know what the showrunner is going to want and it's just like keeping keeping the train on those tracks and before every episode shoots there's a tone meeting would you go yes. to those yes yes especially if it's your if it's your episode most definitely um though sometimes i appreciate it as like as a staff writer uh being able to sit in on those meetings but if your name is on that episode then yes you are responsible to go to the tone meetings you're also talking with the department heads at all of their meetings uh hopefully there will be a uh, a table read which is where like all of the cast gets together and they read through the episode. So again, that like, usually at lunchtime. <laughs> yes, usually at lunchtime. So everyone is like munching and like saying their lines of dialogue in between chewing. 
Um, but it's especially helpful for like, uh, and, and they'll always ask for changes no matter what you do, but usually the table read is like, Hey, if anybody in the cast has any questions or, you know, like dialogue change requests, now is the time to do it before we get to set. Uh, and honestly, like, it's great for the cast because a lot of times, and I'm not by any means shitting on actors, we all have egos. Uh, it's to make sure that the actors have read the script through all the way. Not uh, just my line, my line. My exactly. Line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you would, I don't know. Like you probably wouldn't be amazed, but like your listeners would probably be amazed at how many actors just don't read the script. And so you get on set that day and they have absolutely no context for anything. And it's just you, you know, taking time out of the shoot to catch them up to where they should have been if they'd read the script all the way through. (laughs) And I've I've had to do that. I've had to do that with guest actors, usually Um, like explaining to them how the show works. Uh, But yeah, yeah, you are, you're in the table read, you're in the tone meetings. Um, You are going on the scouts, usually as well uh locations and and walking through with the director to make sure like they have what they need uh to get you know the shots that they want and their interpretation of the scene but also make sure that like the words on the page are coming through as they are intended uh yeah there's there's a lot and like pre-production can be fun it's very long days but it can be fun yeah yeah a producer lives their life on their show that's basically it um, the NAACP became important to you again in that you won an image award from them for Luke Cage. Oh, I, I was actually, nominated. You were nominated. Okay. I, I got nominated for an episode of Amazing Stories and I'm a white guy getting nominated for an <laughs> image award. I'm very proud of that. <laughs> but tell me about the uh, the process and, and how that feels when suddenly you have this honor bestowed upon you. It felt good. It felt like, cause I was really, really proud of that episode of Luke Cage. It's like, as a TV writer, that is one of my proudest, like moments in the room where um, we were trying to like, I think it was episode seven, which was Cottonmouth and just trying to figure out, you know, like what was that character's deal? Like, why did he hate his cousin so much? Why was he so obsessed with music? Like in the show he owns a club and I just remember it's like you know the thought just popped in my head it's like well what if he's not a failed music prodigy but a thwarted musical prodigy and like he has musical talent but all of the funds and the attention went to his cousin uh and so like I remember pitching that to Cheo is like his backstory it's like he's you know and he was one of those like I can hear it once and play it back kind of talents uh and his like the the grandmother in the story just like you know I don't care you're the man of the house you're gonna like you know work in the criminal field and Jay was just like really really blown away by that he was like yes that's it and that's great and it just kind of like you know you know sitting in a writer's room when someone comes upon like a really great idea it just cracks the story open for everybody and like we pretty much like broke that out very quickly um for that character because also spoiler alert that was the episode where he died (laughs) (laughs) so like we needed to have like this good emotional hook for him into you know why he was the way he was uh and so i remember um i think like cheo texted me that morning to tell me it's like hey you you got nominated and i was like huh nominated 
what? <laughs> uh, and then I had to like read the trades. Uh, I think I went to deadline. It's like, oh, hell yes, I got nominated. And it feels good. It feels good to have your work acknowledged in that way. And uh, I got to go to, I think the writing was part of like the pre-filmed portion of the evening. So I got to go to that and then someone else won, but I still got to go uh, and get dressed up for a nice party. And it was fun. And then Yay. I flew my mom out and I got to take my mom to the actual ceremony, um, which was fun. It was just, it was just nice, even though I knew. That's I one of the reasons we do it is to make mom proud, right? Exactly. Uh, and so it was fun. It was like, you know, it was one of those things where I was like, I'll be back here. I'll be back here again someday. Uh, so yeah, that was, it was, it was an honor. It was an honor just to be nominated. Uh, <laughs> yes, <they> really, yeah. <laughs> a really fun evening. Um, so yeah, I was, I was really proud of that. And I have like, they send you a little certificate, uh, with your nominate. Yeah. With your nomination, <laughs> I have mine on my wall. Me too. <laughs> right behind me. <laughs> so in this world of television, um, and, and writers rooms and the like, how many episodes are actually written by one writer? Um, it really, and this is a weird thing. It depends on the show and the network because like I, Early on, on season one of the hundred, for whatever reason, they decided to double all of us up. Um, like, even if you weren't part of a writing team, like, cause I, I co-wrote, uh, two episodes, I think in season one, one with Kira Snyder and then another with Tracy Belomo. And then season two was like, okay, we're not doing that anymore. Um, mm. everyone gets an individual episode. And I remember that was a big thing. So the hundred was the CW, which was like co-owned by Warner brothers. It was a Warner brothers show. Uh, ABC also was really big about that. Like we we were doing that on V. I never got like a credited episode on V because everything kept blowing up and changing. And then like a bunch of people got fired. Long story. But it was ABC just had a policy of like doubling writers up for some reason. But like Witches of East End, it was an individual episode. Uh, it also depends on how many episodes you have. Um back in the network days like the traditional network days we had like 22 episodes if you had a full season so by season I think by season two uh of Grimm I was writing individual episodes uh but early on we were doubling up on season one because it was like the order was 13 so we didn't know if we we're going to get a back nine blah 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 and then it's like okay we've got a back nine and a second season so people don't have to double up episodes anymore i'm not sure how like on star trek strange new worlds we were doubled up um especially early on um that must have been a thrilling assignment, though, to a gig was to work for Star Trek. It was. It was. It was a, a childhood dream come true. Yeah. It's like a rite of passage. Yes. I got my my parents. I named characters after my parents. And so, like, my parents are now, like, in Star Trek canon. So I'm super happy about that. <laughs> That's awesome. So do you do you feel like so many people feel that we are now in a golden age of television? It's been going for a while, but. Uh, no, <laughs> yeah. I think like television, especially with some of the streaming shows, especially what's going on as of late is becoming disposable. I think yeah. we're in the era of disposable TV. Like, you know, do you think there's just too much out there? Yeah. And I mean, it's like, I am happy that writers are working, but also like, I, I feel heartbreak for a lot of my friends who, you know, had shows at HBO max or had shows at AMC plus, 
who spent years of their lives only to find out it's never going to see the light of day. And I've had, you know, I've worked for Netflix a couple of times, like shows that are one and done. Um, that yeah, I've just had that experience uh, with one of those uh, networks as well. And it, you know, everything looks like all full steam ahead and then the crash and burn. And uh, yeah. we just fired a thousand people and you know, all that nonsense. Yeah, I think, I think the golden age of television has, is, has ended that era and now we're in like this transitional period where everyone it's kind of like a sifter where you're just seeing how everything's going to shake out uh and whether or not we can get to another golden age of television um but it's also it's just so much tv competing for like there's only a certain amount of like eyeballs that you can get at any given time and so i think it would probably be better if it was like more concentrated uh and not you know buying everything and then just throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks um yeah. but again like i'm i'm happy when writers get paid for their work um, yes. <laughs> but it's a huge it's a huge thing that that work needs to like air but so many well. of the streamers are imploding now it's a it's it's a dangerous time for entertainment nobody knows what's going to happen next no you can try predicting but good luck with that um yeah but it's a really great time to be making a transition into feature films for you, it seems. <laughs> so tell me about how you and James Wan hooked up together for uh, Malignant and where the idea came from and, and what that relationship was like. So when I was on season one of Luke Cage, like I had been working in TV for a number of years. And again, like you, writing specs took up you know, a large amount of my time because I was always like, I got to hustle to get that next job and blah, blah, blah. By the time I got on Luke Cage, I think I was co-producer. I'm like, okay, I'm a mid-level writer now. I have a body of work behind me. Like I have episodes produced, so I don't need to write specs anymore. And so I can focus on writing what I, you know, came out here to write is like with features. And so I had like two ideas uh, that I wanted to get out of my head and get um, on paper. And so I just took the time of season one of Luke Cage, just worked on those two ideas. And like, I would come into the office early and like work and then like work at home and work on weekends. And I wrote two specs and I got a feature agent at my agency who started sending out the material and uh, they landed at Atomic Monster. And- uh, Which is James Wan's company. Yeah. Yes. And James Wan's executives, Justin Scott and Michael Clear, like responded to my work. They liked the specs. And so they brought me in for a general, which is just like a, hey, how you doing? Nice to meet you, like chit chat kind of a meeting. It, was, it wasn't about anything specific. And so as we were talking, like they're horror fans, like dedicated horror fans, which is rare to find in this business, <laughs> especially at the time. It's like a lot of executives like treated horror as like the, the bastard stepchild of the industry that they kind of had to tolerate. And so like we finding, are the gutter. Yeah. Yes. So finding executives who genuinely liked horror and we would just talk about like the horror that we grew up with a lot of eighties movies. And so they happened to tell me that like, Hey, we meaning like us and James have been kicking around this idea about doing a modern day killer doll movie. And so Megan actually came first. I see. And they were like, Hey, it's, we wanted to be like chopping mall meets child's play is what <laughs> they told me. 
And it's like, if you want to try to come up with a take on that, let us know. And I'm like, okay, I'll give it a shot. And I gave it a shot and I wrote out like a six page treatment and came back in and pitched it to them. And they responded really well. And they were like, let's take it to James. And they took that to James and he responded, had a couple notes he wanted me to do. And I, you know, made the changes. And then they had a first look deal at Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers was like, thank you, but we already have Annabelle. We don't need another killer doll. (laughs) <laughs> and then they took it to James, sorry, Jason Blum, uh, who had worked with James on the Insidious franchise. And he was like, sure, <laughs> let's do this. Like, we want to work together again. Uh, James so has Blumhouse, a history of killer dolls with, uh, with uh, you know, Dead Silence and everything else. Uh, Dead Silence is one of my, it's an underrated movie. Like, you were talking about yeah. magic, like. To backtrack, Ma- I saw magic at a very young age, and that gave me a fear of ventriloquist dummies to this day. Uh, they are creepy little fucking things, and I don't understand why people like them. <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah, and so I wrote uh, I wrote Megan for uh, Atomic Monster and Blumhouse, and everyone was happy. And so a couple of months after that, I got brought back in to Atomic Monster. They're like, hey, James and his partner Ingrid uh, have another idea that they want to see if you're interested in. And that was malignant. Uh, and it just so happened that like when Ingrid was describing like the, the body horror that she was fascinated with um, the, the teratoma, I was like, I know what that is because I had <laughs> a friend who had gone through that. Like she had absorbed her twin in the womb. And then at 16, like they discovered that like it had been growing on her spine or whatever. They thought she had cancer. turns out it was her twin uh, basically growing on her spine and like siphoning all the nutrients and stuff out of her body. And so she had to have a surgery. And when they brought it out, it looked like, you know, like a troll doll that had been crushed into a ball. Um, So I was familiar with it and they didn't really have to like explain too much more than that. And so they had already had like, a treatment that was a couple of pages with like the broad ideas of what they wanted in the movie. And so I took that, fleshed it out and like fleshed out the sister character uh, and then the cops. And and then we were off to the races and it just so happened that like, that was the one that got made first. Yeah. So now I, I'm curious because there is a scene that's uh, reminiscent of one of our Masters of Horror episodes, the Takashi Miike. Was that oh, an influence? God. Was that an influence? Um, I don't remember, like, I don't... The face in the hand, yeah. Yeah, I think if it did, it came from James. <laughs> okay, fair enough. It just seemed like, wow, somebody watched our show. <laughs> I did watch your show. I, I did. I remember, was it uh, the one with Udo Kier that was banned? Oh, no, the, the Miike one was banned, but the okay. Udo Kier one was John Carpenter, yeah. Gotcha. I re- yeah, I remember it was like on Showtime and they're like, we're going to, they aired it once and then they never aired it again. Yeah, it's true. So tell me about the process of working with James. You know, James, is he an active participant? I know he gets, shares story credit with you mm-hmm. on, on these two movies. Um, but do you go home and write on your own and then come in and show pages or a finished draft? Or is there a lot of back and forth with him as an active participant? Um, it's usually like we come up with the idea um, and then I just go off and I write. And usually with Atomic Monster, I will uh, turn in a finished draft that then I'll sit down with uh, like the executives, Judson and Michael, do notes. Uh, in the case of Megan, it was like Judson, Michael, Cooper Samuelson and Ryan Turek at Blumhouse. 
uh, and then do that pass. And then it goes to Jay to James and or Jason. Uh, though mostly it's like James was giving like the big notes uh, for something like Megan. Uh, for Malignant, it was pretty much it's like same thing except without Blumhouse. It was like the executives at Atomic Monster and then James would weigh in and then I would do those notes. Uh, and then like, I think I did like two passes for each, so like two passes for Megan and then two passes for Malignant. And then the directors took over from there. I see. Now, do you have a preference in the way you work? Do you prefer writing features to writing television? I enjoy both. Um, They're different disciplines completely. Yes, I do. I do kind of like television in that it is quicker. <laughs> you have like, you know, 45 to 52 pages that you have to do. Whereas with a feature, it's like at least 90, um, maybe 80 if you can get away with it. Uh, and, and the discipline of like having to like get your episode done because it's going to be filmed. Like you can't, you know, sit on your thumbs and wait for inspiration to strike when you're working in television, you've got to, you've got to turn in those pages and you, you know, you've got to get it to production. So I appreciate that. Like features, I do enjoy just like the lone wolf aspect of like, I am, I'm in my office and I'm working and I'm listening to music and like coming up with that stuff. Um, but I do, I probably television gets the edge because uh, I don't mind the collaboration and I do love being in a writer's room. Um, I love just like, you know, the group, not group think, but just like the group effort. The group uh, contribution, yeah. Yes, the group contribution of like, everyone wants to make a cool, fun episode. And like you, you know, when you're talking with people and discussing things, you're, you know, coming up with stuff that you yourself might not have thought of alone. Um, yeah, you're inspiring but, each other. Yeah, yeah. And it's a lot of fun. And so with features, it's usually it's James going. It's like, well, what if this was set at Christmas? It's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Megan was initially supposed to take place during Christmas, like, unfortunately, <laughs> like when it moved from production from Montreal to New Zealand, like I think New Zealand <laughs> in summer at that point or something like that. So, yeah. yeah no more Christmas, but like he liked that feel of it uh, for, for the movie. And so it's like, he's also got some like really awesome ideas about like character work and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's usually, it's just like James has this note and then yeah, you do that note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there's another big difference between television, writing for television and writing for movies in that television gets made and consumed at home one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. movies are a shared experience. Tell me about the first time you went to a screening of Malignant. Oh, it was Beyond Fest. Uh, I was so happy they got me tickets. And I remember I took my friend and it was in the theater, I think the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica. Oh, and yeah. we were like, we found a parking spot and we're walking and my friend is like, Akela. And I'm like, huh? And he's like, that, the line. And like, there was a line like, down the block it was like two blocks of people standing in line he was like they're here for your movie and i was like what that's right oh my god and so watching malignant for the first time with a theater audience i am happy that i had that experience uh it was so much fun horror movies are so much fun to watch with audiences um like the communal you know, thrill of being scared together and then laughing together. There's nothing like it. And also like occasionally you get the people who were just like, don't go in that room, you know? Like, yeah. oh, it's so contagious. Fear is so contagious when you're surrounded by an eager audience. It is like one of the best, 
I remember going to see Hereditary at Arclight Hollywood. May she return someday. Yeah. Um, and you know, the 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 moment where after Gabriel Byrne has been set on fire and it cuts to the boy's room, and like the contrast is like it's just really dark because your eyes are now like adjusting and just the the moments of people realizing what was in the corner like and watching that ripple through the the audience like because my friend had this like (gasps) and i'm like what and he elbowed me and he's like the corner and i'm like oh shit and then like (laughs) and everyone is just like little oh my god (gasps) like everyone is like reacting as they see it you know and that was like that was such a fun experience also (laughs) sadly watching the the young girl get beheaded was also just like everyone like lost their shit at that moment like it was like we were all in that car accident um but yes watching malignant for the first time because like there were moments and these were james moments uh that i didn't know were coming like the uh when sydney the sister parks on the cliff in the movie i was like what is what is happening and then people like burst out laughing but they were supposed to laugh because that's the movie um (laughs) so yeah it was it was fun to experience that in real time with the audience but knowing that the third act reveal was coming and watching people like react to that moment was yeah that was that was a fulfilling moment as a writer and it's pretty audacious too (laughs) you know what there was no reason to ever doubt james wan um, (laughs) especially when it comes to horror and so i was like oh yeah no you got this uh and he did and it was beautiful so were there many test screenings for megan uh there were a couple yes and i got to go to some early ones uh on the warner brothers lot and i remember uh the very first one they had warned all of us it was like a friends and family screening that they wanted to get feedback from and uh, we were told it's like this is a rough cut this is a really rough cut you know like vfx aren't done like there may or may not be an ending like they needed to do reshoots and pickups for the ending and so it was it was a crap shoot as to whether or not we were going to see the ending which we did not it literally cut to like a title card that was like next time there will be an ending here. scene missing yeah yes but like i remember even without like all the vfx being done like halfway through just in my head going am i insane or is this really good like am i i'm biased clearly that's what this is i'm biased and i turned to my friend who i brought and i'm like is it just me or is this really good and they were like no it's really good like it's really really good and i'm like well you're my friend so you're kind of biased too but yeah and it was it was you talk you read about like people who was like oh oh we knew we knew yeah. it was going to be good. Like I didn't know, but I had a film like, okay, there will be an audience for this most definitely. Like, and I, I remember that first screen. I was like, oh, I'm going to have another cult hit on my hand. Cool. Yeah. Well, it's gone beyond cult hit and uh, <laughs> the residuals are going to be hard to hide on this one when your budget is a fraction of what uh, it has made. Now, that's another thing is you're talking about visual effects. There are far fewer visual effects than people probably think on Megan because so much of the doll is practical work that Adrian Moreau created, right? Yes. There are still like visuals like for the face to make because like we had Amy Donald who was like in the costume. Right. Um, and sometimes like when it's her and it's close up, like they did have to clean up the face so it didn't look as plasticky uh and kind of had to match the animatronic 
uh, version of Megan. But yeah, it's, you know, um, it's, it's, it was really a lot of like wonderful practical work that Gerard Johnstone and the production crew like managed to do. And that's like, it also gives it like this kind of timeless feel in that yeah. it's you know it's it's not all 100 percent vfx because i remember early on like we didn't know how we were going to make the doll um and there was a world where she would have been like completely vfx right um, but then you know we happily and you know thankfully went in another direction and it worked so so yeah. nice when an actor can work with the doll and not just yes. green tennis balls yeah. yes very nice okay so what are your favorite scary doll movies creepy doll movies obviously child's play yeah i grew up child's play was the first movie i think i learned how to like put on by myself like when i learned how to operate (laughs) we had a beta machine that's how far back this goes me too so like i i would i would put on the beta machine and i don't even think i could read like the or I probably could but I just remember like it was a very particular logo and I'd be like child's play and like put it on and just watch it like as if it was a Saturday or you know <laughs> Saturday morning cartoon uh so that magic we talked about magic not necessarily a favorite but it did unnerve the shit out of me <laughs> um I would also probably um oh what are the it's it's ah uh, the name is escaping me puppet master Oh yeah. The Charlie band series. Yeah. Yes. With all the little ones, you yeah. know, coming after people like that was, was scary to me as well. Uh, and dead silence, like again, ventriloquist dummies, eternally creepy. Yeah. Um, that was one of my favorite, you know, early James Wan movies. Like I like that one more than I like saw. Sorry. James. Yeah, People need to um, seek that out. It's only a second movie, but uh, it's, it's getting, I think it's getting a 4k release. I remember oh, seeing something James post something on Instagram. Uh, yeah. I think it's, it's going to be out on Blu-ray and 4k. So if people want to seek it out, they can. Well, the great news that was just announced in the last day or so before we're recording this is that Megan 2.0 is coming. So. It is, and I finally don't have to dodge that question. <laughs> so wonderful. It's so wonderful for me now that I can answer with an affirmative, yes, the sequel is happening. So can you tell us anything about it? No, I cannot. <laughs> Nothing at all. Okay. Well, I don't blame you. I totally get that. Um, what is in the future for you? Do you have an interest in directing? You've done writing and you've done producing and you've been deeply involved. Would you like to be the one calling the shots? Um, it's on my mind and it's become a conversation. Um, I'm kind of iffy on it. Like I am happy, like just doing the writing and like, like in features and like turning it over. Like, again, I I can't complain. Like James Wan and Gerard Johnstone both like knocked these scripts out of the park. Um, so I've been very, very lucky that I've had excellent directors. Uh, I am curious about that, what that would be like to like direct something I myself have written. Uh, so yes, it is a discussion that I am having with myself and my reps and all of my friends who are also like, you should be directing. Um, so we there any, we'll see. anything more in the future that we can learn about that you are up to? Uh, yes, I actually have a second movie coming out this year, September 8th. Uh, the Nun 2 for New Line yes. and Brothers and Atomic Monster. It's my third film with them. That's great. Well, Akela, thank you so much for sharing your background with us and, and your work process and all that. It's really a pleasure. And I just hope to see much more of your work. Thank you. I appreciate that. I am a fan, Nick.
Uh, I appreciate that. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.